Welcome to Reading Genesis. My name is Stephen Longclaw. I'm a priest serving in the Anglican Church in North America and also a United States Navy chaplain. Join me as we discover the sacramental and enchanted world of the Bible through Reading Genesis together. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would bless us tonight. We pray that you would uh, speak to us and that we would grow in our knowledge of your scriptures and therefore grow in holiness. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 26. We're picking up our story with Isaac now. If you remember, Isaac is Abraham's son. Isaac is the promised seed, the promised son for Abraham. Last time in Genesis 25, we we paused to see the birth of Isaac and Rebekah's sons, Jacob and Esau, the twins. The twins were born when Isaac was 60, I believe. So Isaac and Rebekah married when he was 40. 20 years later, the twins were born. When Rebekah met Isaac, he was out meditating in the field, which shows his, his faith a bit. He's, he's a man of prayer. Isaac is, in ch- chapter 25, we actually see Isaac praying for his wife, Rebekah, that she would conceive uh, because she was barren. That's something new. Uh, we never see Abraham praying for his wife, Sarah, when she was barren. That doesn't mean that he didn't, right? He, he very well may have. But the Bible doesn't doesn't bring attention to that. But it does point to uh, it does point, bring our attention to the fact that Isaac does pray for his wife Rebecca. She conceives. They have Jacob and Esau twins, and Isaac is sixty years old when the twins are born, which means they've been married a good twenty years and haven't had children. So we are now returning to the story of Isaac uh, in Genesis twenty six. We never really left the story of Isaac, but we're going to zero in on on Isaac now twenty six. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And Yahweh appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give you offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We'll pause there. So a couple things to point out. First of all, we see that Abraham, excuse me, Isaac goes down to the land of Gerar to Abimelech. We've met a man named Abimelech before. If you remember, Abraham twice told the people of the land that his wife, Sarai, was his sister. The first time was in Egypt. The second time was with Abimelech. Now, Abimelech literally means uh, my son is king or son of the king. Av, av, the A-B is is, uh, father. Excuse me. My father is king. That's what it means. Father, like Abraham, the Av and Abraham, the A-B is is father of many. So A-B for Abimelech is father and Melech is king. So my father is king. So this is really a title. This is not a name. So Abimelech is likely the prince. So the Abimelech that Abraham met is likely this guy's father. Okay. But he has a short memory as, or rather he has a long memory as we'll see, because uh, Isaac makes the same. He, he, he does. Isaac uh, is, is an apple that doesn't fall very far from the tree. So we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment when we get to verse six. 
<clears throat> the second thing I want you to see is God appears to Isaac. Now, I keep pointing this out because we so often have this idea that God speaks to the patriarchs in this disembodied voice, this light from the sky, and that's what we think. But that's not what we actually read in the Bible. We see God appearing to Isaac. So what does that mean if God appears? Let me ask that another way. That God appears, what do you think Abim well, not Abimelech, what do you think Isaac sees if God appears? Person. Probably a person. Exactly, exactly. Isaac's not seeing a big bright light in the sky with a disembodied voice. Isaac is seeing a person with a body appearing to him. Now, we don't have any more details on that, but we know that God, Yahweh, is appearing to Abraham. God, Yahweh, is now appearing to Isaac. We'll see that God appears to many people. We also know in other places that we've looked at that um, Moses, for example, who's in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses uh, speaks to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend. In the same chapter, it is also said that Moses cannot see God and live. So what's going on there? How, how on one hand is Moses able to speak to God face to face as a man speaks with a friend, but then on the other hand, he can't see God and live. That tells us that there's a plurality of persons in the Godhead, right? So the one to, the, if you see my face, you will die. You cannot see my face and live. That's God the Father, okay? When Moses speaks to Yahweh, God, face to face, as a man speaks to a friend, he's speaking to God the Son, who we know as Jesus, the one who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary in the New Testament, Jesus. That is the one who is appearing to Isaac right now. This is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, appearing to Abraham. Excuse me, not to Abraham, to Isaac. And he tells him... <clears throat> Don't go to Egypt. Bad things happen when you go to Egypt. Instead, stay in the land of Gerar. And all those promises that I made to your father, Abraham, those are going to be true for you and your family as well. Continuing in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Like I said, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? This is the same thing Abraham did twice with his wife, Sarai. A little bit different circumstances, though. And Abraham, when Abraham did it, Abraham concocted the idea, telling Sarah beforehand, if anyone asks how you're related to me, tell them you're my sister, which was not untrue. We, we do know that Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. Uh, I believe it is they shared the same father, but they had a different mother. I could have that backwards, but I think that's what it was. So, so they are half-brother, half-sister. So by Abraham saying, she is my sister, he wasn't lying. He was just withholding the full picture of the truth. Of course, he, he did that so that he could put himself in a place where if someone wanted to marry Sarah... As the brother, he would the, the, the negotiations would happen through him and he could step in front of that and get ahead of it and cut all that off uh, before anything bad happened. We see Isaac doing the same thing, except Isaac doesn't say to Rebecca, hey, tell them you're my sister. It seems that Isaac's responding when they already ask. Hey, 
who's that pretty lady over there, Isaac? He's like, oh, that's uh, that's my sister. Oh, okay, that's your sister. And Isaac... Actually, first cousin. First cousin, it is. It is. Bethuel and Abraham were brothers. That is correct. So so they, they are cousins. Now, there is debate on whether sister... When he says she's my sister, at this time, uh, it's within the semantic range of the word, of the Hebrew word sister, to mean cousin. That means she's a close kinsman. So some, some people have said, well, Isaac's not lying by saying sister, that that could include a first cousin. Others say, oh no, he's absolutely lying because sister is one who shares you know, a parent uh, with, with you. So there you have it. So Isaac is, is uh, telling the men that she is his sister. Verse eight, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Pause there. So my translation, the ESV translation, says that they're laughing. Some other translations say some other things. They're joking, Caress. caressing. Yeah, something's going on where uh, Isaac and Rebecca are relating to each other in a flirtatious manner, the way that a husband and wife would normally relate to each other, the way that is appropriate for a husband and wife, the way that is not appropriate for a brother and sister. And Abimelech picks up on this and he says, what's going on? This isn't right. Why did you tell us she's my sister? Clearly, clearly you two are in love. Clearly she's your spouse. She's not your sister. Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is your sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. What is Isaac's fear in all of this? What, what motivates him to to concoct this story that Rebecca is his sister. He tells us in verse nine, I thought lest I die because of her. You gotta remember where Isaac is. You gotta remember who these people are. These Philistines, these are a pagan people, all right? This, this isn't your kind neighbor down the road who goes to a different church than you do and you're kind of getting to know them. These are pagans. <laughs> these these p- pagans are not necessarily people of of trustworthy reputation, right? So Isaac is afraid that if they find out that Rebecca is his sister, they, excuse me, if they find out that Rebecca is his wife, that they'll just kill him. They'll kill Isaac and take Rebecca for themselves and marry her that way. So he's trying to avoid that by saying, she's my sister. It's the same thing that Abraham did. He doesn't want to avoid getting killed. So he says, she's my sister. Therefore, that allows Abraham and now Isaac the opportunity to negotiate those marriage uh, rituals, to negotiate the, the marriage laws and the marriage contracts, which, of course, that gives Isaac a position of power to say, oh, no, 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 you, you can't marry her. You know, maybe she's betrothed to someone else in a far off land, but she's already spoken for. Don't worry about it. She's off, you know, quote, quote unquote, she's off the market, so to speak. She's, she's, she's not available. What we see happening is, a, is God works in this situation anyway. God is faithful to Isaac and God through Abimelech actually changes Abimelech's heart. And Abimelech 
gives a command to all the people saying, Rebecca's off limits. All right. All the men in Gerar, we all see Rebecca. We see how beautiful she is and you may not have her. She is Isaac's wife. And if you, if you go near her, if you touch her, you will surely be put to death. This is God intervening and, and sparing Isaac and Rebekah from, uh, from this possible death and humiliation. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And Yahweh blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Let's pause again. We spoke about this with Abraham a bit because Abraham was also a wealthy person. We see that there are people in the Bible who are rich. And these people are faithful God-fearers. They follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, God, the same God that we follow. And they are rich. Isaac here is described as having great wealth. He became more and more wealthy until he became very wealthy. I make that point because we have this idea that if you're going to be a Christian, that you should be poor. Right? Christians shouldn't have a lot of money. Christians should be poor, particularly pastors and ministers. Right, The idea that, that the pastor shouldn't make a lot. I don't know who came up with that idea originally, but it's out there. It's part of our culture. On the opposite side, on the flip side, we have this, this other idea, which flows a lot from the prosperity gospel, uh, the, the false teaching of the prosperity gospel, that... God wants you to be rich and he wants all Christians to be rich. So if, if you follow God and if you are faithful to God, he will richly bless you and you will never go without. Okay. Both of those ideas are wrong. Both of those ideas are wrong. It's not that God wants all Christians to be poor, nor is it that God wants all Christians to be rich. In fact, when we go through the Bible and we see different people uh, who are faithful to God. Some of them have a lot of wealth, like Isaac, like Abraham. Some of them don't have a lot of wealth. Some of them are very poor, like Jesus himself, who said the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. The apostles were all, for the most part, pretty poor. So, so how do we reconcile that? Some are rich, some are poor. Well, the truth is, we are supposed to be faithful to God with whatever station he, he gives us. If you are a person who has great wealth, then you are to be faithful to God with your wealth. If you are a person who does not have great wealth, then you are still to be faithful to God with the little that you have. But to whom God gives much, much is required, even money. And as I say that, I want to remind us that we are all Americans, 21st century Americans, and we are all rich compared to the rest of the world. So all of us in this room are rich. We're rich folks. And because we are rich, we have been blessed with much, and there is much that is required. We have a greater responsibility than other people of other cultures who don't have a lot. Just like Isaac. Isaac, Isaac is responsible to God for the money he has. Any questions or thoughts on that before we move on? 
I'm reminded that the birds, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the the, the son, son of man, man yeah. No son of man has no place to put his head. That That's right. So verse 17. Uh, actually, before we get to verse 17, we see this thing going on where because Isaac is wealthy, he's now being asked to, he's now being sent away. Verse 16, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. There's almost this sense of fear in Abimelech's voice that Isaac's going to become so great that Isaac may choose to do something evil to Abimelech. We don't know what Abimelech's thinking. It may be that he's afraid that Isaac's going to become so wealthy that he's going to revolt against Abimelech and destroy him and his household and take over all the land. So Abimelech sends Isaac and his people away. So Isaac departed, verse 17, So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug wells. Isaac again dug the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Essek literally means contention. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. Sitna means enmity. Verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now Yahweh has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means room or a broad room, meaning God has given him enough room or enough space now in the land so that his people can thrive. This is an odd story about the wells, and I... I want to read something from uh, St. Ambrose commenting on these wells. St. Ambrose was church father of the 4th century, so the 300s. Uh, he was the, the um, mentor of St. Augustine, one of the, the greatest of the church fathers. And this is what Ambrose says about these wells. He, he, he takes a spiritual interpretation which doesn't negate the historical interpretation. Of course, this historically really did happen, but he sees something more going on in the spiritual realm. Uh, this is from his, his treatise, Isaac or the Soul. For Abraham <clears throat> dug wells and Isaac too, that is, the mighty patriarchs, and Jacob also, as we find in the gospel, as if they were fountains of the human race and specifically fountains of faith and devotion. For what is a well of living water but a depth of profound instruction. On this account, Hagar saw the angel by a well, and Jacob found his wife Rachel by a well. Moses, too, earned the first rewards of his future marriage beside a well. Therefore, Isaac undertook to open wells out of a depth of vision and in good order, so that the water of his well might first wash and strengthen the reasoning faculty of the soul to its eye, to make its sight clearer. So it's an interesting interpretation. What is Ambrose saying? He's seeing this theme of water that we see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. A lot of things happen at wells. Isaac met his wife, Rebecca, at a well. Well, actually, it wasn't Isaac who met Rebecca. It was the servant that Abraham sent. And the servant found Rebecca by a well. 
Ambrose points out the fact that Moses, in the book of Exodus, finds his wife at a well. We'll learn in a couple chapters that Isaac's son, Jacob, is going to find his wife, Rachel, at a well. A lot of these marriages happen at wells. In the New Testament, in John chapter 4, we see Jesus himself meets a woman at a well. And she's had six husbands. The husband that she currently have it has is not her husband, as Jesus points out. So there's this, this, uh, this theme there that Jesus is presenting himself to be her eighth, the eighth man in her life, right? Six husbands. The one she currently has is the seventh, who's not her husband. And Jesus is saying, I'm number eight. That's the, that's the number of resurrection, the number of, of uh, right, the, the new life, new beginnings. Now, Jesus isn't literally offering himself to her uh, in, in a marriage ceremony. That's not it. But he's spiritually offering himself as her savior. And she represents the Gentiles of, of, those, of, of, of that area. Uh, the Samaritan Gentiles. So Jesus is offering himself to the world as the resurrection and the life. And how does he do that? Or where does he do that? At a well. So there's this theme of wells, this theme of water throughout the Old Testament that carries into the New Testament. We ourselves in, in, in the Christian faith, we are baptized. There's that water imagery again. When we are baptized, we are united to Christ. We are, we are joined to the church. Baptism in water is, in a way, our marriage to Jesus Christ. That's the ceremony that we go through to join the church, and the church is the bride of Christ, right? So we are joined to Christ uh, through baptism in that way, as Paul points out in Romans 6 and, and other places in the New Testament. So all of this water imagery, Ambrose picks up on that water imagery, and he says that these, these fountains are for the human race, specifically the fountains of faith and devotion. Faith and devotion. So by, by Isaac, excuse me, Isaac's servants digging these wells, he's saying this is, a, this is faith and devotion. You know, they're, they're, they're instilling faith and devotion in, in their family for future generations. Verse 23, From there he went up to Beersheba, and Yahweh appeared to him the same night and said, Oh, what is Yahweh doing? appearing, appearing to him the same night. So this is God the Son appearing to Isaac. And he said to him, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of Yahweh and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. More water imagery. Now Isaac, the, the, the covenant promises of Abraham are given to Isaac and what does he do? He digs a well, right? All this water imagery and the covenant promises of God are all, are all tied up together. Verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to see me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We plainly see that Yahweh has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of Yahweh. Let's pause there. So what's going on? Well, Abimelech, our old friend Abimelech, the, the one who sent Isaac away just a few verses before, Abimelech now comes to Isaac with his advisor Ahuzath, 
and the commander of his army, Phicol. These three people knock on Isaac's door <laughs> and they say, Hey, hey, old friend, remember us? Yeah, we were always good to you. Hey, you know what we should do? We should make a covenant with you because you're clearly great and God is clearly with you. And uh, we don't want you to destroy us. So please covenant with us that you will not destroy us. <laughs> and Isaac, what, what's, what's interesting here is, is Isaac knows that, that he has the power in this situation. Isaac has become more powerful than Abimelech, more wealthy than Abimelech. This is why Abimelech is scared. Um, I think it's it's uh, Origen, uh, another one of the church fathers. He he interprets this in an interesting way. He, he gives another allegorical interpretation where he says uh, Abimelech and Ahuzath and Phicol represent all the the the, the philosophy and, and all the wisdom, the philosophy and the wisdom of their day, the wisdom and the philosophy of of paganism. And here they are coming to Isaac, who is the representative of Jesus in this story, because Jesus will eventually come from Isaac. So all the pagans come to Jesus and, and plead for mercy at the feet of Jesus. Very, very Christian interpretation, which is interesting. But these, these men are terrified of, of Isaac, and they want to covenant with him that Isaac will not destroy them. So Isaac can, has some choices here. Isaac could send them away. Isaac could say, no, you sent me away in fear. I'm sending you away now. Go be fearful. Or Isaac can send them away and not covenant with them and say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to make a covenant with you, but I'm also not going to destroy you, right? I don't want to have anything to do with you, but don't worry. I'm not going to kill you. He could send him away that way. Notice what Isaac does instead. Isaac shows them great hospitality. Verse 30, so he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. Isaac makes, makes that covenant that they asked. He doesn't have to, but he does. He chooses to make the covenant with them saying he's not going to destroy them. He feeds them. They have a great party that night, and he makes that covenant the following morning. So Isaac is proving to be quite a, a God-fearing man, quite, quite a kind and generous man, actually. E even to the people like Abimelech, who were formerly not very uh, generous to him when Abimelech sent him and his family away from them in fear. Verse 32, that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Sheba means oath. That's where he made the oath with Abimelech. Verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's pause there. Who is Esau? Esau is their son. That's right. So, so the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Abraham's wife is Sarai. Abraham and Sarai give birth to Isaac. Isaac Isaac's wife is Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have the twins, Jacob and Esau. The promise is going to carry to Jacob. Jacob is, Jacob's name will eventually be changed to Israel. 
and Jacob will have 12 sons, and those become the, the, the those 12 sons eventually become the, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, right. We're not there yet, though. So this is Esau. This is Jacob's twin brother. This is Isaac's son, Isaac and Rebekah's son, who did not choose a wife from the family. He did not uh, choose a wife from, from the Hebrew people. Instead, he married one of the local girls. The Hittites were pagans. The Hittites were pagans. The Hittites, it's, it's believed that the Hittites actually came from uh, Noah's son, Noah's grandson, Canaan. So if you remember back in Genesis 9, I think it is, which we're now in Genesis 26. Genesis 9 seems like it was so long ago. Genesis 9 is where we, we studied the story after the flood. Noah made a uh, Noah planted a vineyard and became drunk on the wine from his vineyard. And then his son, Ham, came in and defiled him somehow. He did something. The sin of Ham. The response to that was Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan. And we talked about what, what could have possibly happened when we studied that. We won't go back into it now. But uh, the Hittites uh, come from the line of Canaan, come from this cursed line. Uh, so the Hittites are, are not, not a great people. Uh, they're certainly not a godly people. And so Esau takes two wives from the Hittite peoples. So that's problematic for two reasons. First, he's not being equally yoked with a believer. Uh, we're not sure if Esau at this time even is a believer. I personally do not think Esau is a believer. I think Esau, we, we, we've already seen Esau uh, sell his birthright to Jacob for some red stuff. Remember, some red stew. So he, uh, he's a man who's ruled by his passions. Oh, he's, Jacob, I'm about to die. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm starving. Please give me, some, give me some food. And Jacob's like, well, I'll tell you what. You sell me your birthright, you can have as much as you want. Oh, what's the birthright to me? I'm about to die. So Esau is very much a man ruled by his passions. That's uh, chapter 25, the end of chapter 5, we read that story. And uh, Esau, pretty much, in, in my eyes at least, uh, he doesn't seem like he fears the Lord at all. He doesn't fear God at all. I do think Esau will come around. We'll, we'll see that in, in future chapters of Genesis. But right now, he doesn't fear God. Uh, so he's unequally yoked with, uh, with women from, from uh, a pagan tribe, the Hittites. That's, that's problem number one. Problem number two is he takes two wives. He's, a, uh, he's, he's not monogamous, right? He, he, he takes two wives. Now, a lot of people will read the Bible a lot of modern scholars and, and, and people will read the Bible and they will think that the Bible endorses polygamy. Polygamy, that is marrying more than one person. It is true that there is polygamy in the Bible. We have already seen polygamy in the Bible. Abraham had Sarai as a wife and he took Hagar as a wife. He eventually sent Hagar away and Sarai eventually, Sarah, Sarai who eventually became Sarah, she eventually died and he took a third wife, Keturah. Of course, uh, uh, Keturah was appropriate to take as a wife because uh, Sarah had died. We see Jacob, Esau's brother, Jacob is going to take a wife, Rachel. He's also going to take her sister to be a wife, Leah. 
And then he's also going to take their two servants, Rachel's servant and Leah's servant, to be concubines. So he's going to have four women in his life, and that's how he's going to have 12 children by these four women. So yes, the Bible mentions polygamy because it was part of this culture. However, the Bible never endorses polygamy. In fact, every time we see people in the Bible that take more than one spouse, it usually not usually, 100% of the time, it causes family problems. It's always a thorn in the side. It's not a good idea to take more than one spouse. In the law, I think it's in the, in the book of, of Deuteronomy, it actually does say that you should not marry uh, sister to sister. Uh, and that's a, that's a Hebrew idiom saying you should not take more than one wife, right? Don't, don't, don't marry a bunch of women. So it is actually outright condemned in the law. Uh, here, where, where we are in Genesis, it's not condemned so much as it's just presented uh, in a very negative light. When, whenever anyone marries more than one spouse, it never turns out well for them. It's always a thorn in their side. So if people say, oh, the Bible teaches that polygamy is good, you can say, no, it does not. <laughs> the Bible is honest, though. I like that. So the history that it records is true history. You know, wrinkles, warts, and all. Even our own patriarchs of the faith, it, it records them making blunders and making huge mistakes. That's one of the ways, one of the reasons we know that the Bible is true, because it, it doesn't paint these people in the best of light 100% of the time. It records all their sins. It records all their mistakes. It records all this stuff. You know, so, so, so we can have faith that it's, uh, it's, it's actually telling the truth. It's giving us the, the real story. Um, so here we see Esau is marrying Hittite women, and he's marrying two women. And these women become a thorn in the side for Isaac and Rebekah. They make life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau is eventually going to marry more women in a couple chapters. He's even going to take more wives and multiply wives, which is just going to keep causing problems. So all that to say, be faithful, be faithful to the wife you got. Dance with the one what brung you. Right? As the old saying goes. So with that, we shall bring this to a close. Are there any questions over anything we looked at tonight? I have a question. Yeah. Sure. A question from last time. Go ahead. <laughs> so at the part where Esau sells his birthright, mm -hmm. why didn't Jacob just give him some stew without making him give up his birthright? That's his brother. Because <laughs> Jacob and Esau don't like each other. Yeah. Yeah. He, Jacob wants the birthright and Esau, Esau proves that he is faithless by selling the birthright. He probably saw his brother just throwing away that birthright, right? And just not really caring about it. And in combination, it sounds like they hated each other anyways, but That's right. like, you're not going to do anything with that birthright. I want that. Let me have it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of clues in the text that show Esau's faithlessness. First of all, he's wanting some red stew, which we don't know what that means. Uh, uh, Jacob could be cooking, uh, we, we talked about this last time, Jacob could be, could be cooking blood in there, as far as we know, that, that's making the stew red. And there's already been, God has already said, you shall not drink blood, right? He told that to Noah, uh, you, you shall not drink blood. Esau doesn't seem to care. Whatever Jacob is cooking, he wants some of it. 
You know, because it, it literally says in verse 30 of chapter 25, uh, let me eat some of that red stuff, or that red stew, that red stuff, whatever you got there. We only find out in, uh, in verse 34 that it's lentil stew. That's what's making it red. But Esau doesn't seem to care. So he's, he's, he doesn't care about following God's law. Second, he's coming in from the field. He's, he's saying, oh, I'm about to die. Uh, he's not, probably not really about to die. So he's a man ruled by his passions. Uh, he wants what he wants now. This is why he takes two wives. You know, no one can tell me what to do. I'm going to take a wife and I'm going to take a second one. He doesn't ask his parents if he thinks this is a good idea. You know, hey, mom, dad, what do you think about me taking a wife from the Hittite, from the Hittite girls? Uh, obviously, Isaac and Rebecca would have said, uh, we think that's a horrible idea. <laughs> uh, don't take a wife from the Hittite girls. They're, they're a pagan people. Why would you even think about taking a wife from the Hittite girls? You know, it, or, if they have that conversation, it's not recorded for us, but whether or not they have that conversation, Esau sees what he wants. He sees, uh, you know, the, the Hittite girls are cuter than the, than the Hebrew girls, and, and, and I'm going to marry them. The end. I'm a, man, I'm a man who just takes what I want. Give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of those Hittite women. And uh, for all these reasons, you know, Jacob, Jacob wants to be faithful to God, I believe. He wants the birthright. He, he, he wants those covenant promises. And so he makes Esau sell him the birthright. Next time in chapter 27, this tension between Jacob and Esau is going to come to a crescendo. This is when we see Isaac uh, blessing Jacob rather than blessing Esau. Jacob deceives his brother Isaac and robs him of the blessing, uh, which is a very interesting story. So Jacob deceives Esau. Jacob deceives Isaac because Isaac, Isaac blesses Jacob thinking that he's blessing Esau. So, yeah. So timeline-wise, at the time that Esau gets married, it says that Esau was 40 years old. Let's back up a little bit. Uh, chapter 25 tells us that when Isaac got married to Rebekah, he was 40 years old. When Isaac had Jacob and Esau, the twins, he was 60 years old. 40 years later, Esau's getting married because Esau's 40 years old. That makes Isaac 100 years old at this point. So chapter 27 opens with Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. So he's going blind. He's 100 years old. He's going blind. Jacob uses that to his advantage and tricks his father, Isaac, stealing Esau's blessing. Did, I guess, did uh, Isaac and, what's his wife's name? Rebecca. Rebecca. Uh, did they know that Jacob took the birthright? You know what? We're not told that they knew about this. I'm not sure. That's a good question. I would presume that they did because what, what, what we read in verse 34 of chapter 25 Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Not, thus Jacob deceived Esau, or Jacob stole Esau's birthright. The commentary in the Bible is Esau despised his birthright. So Esau's completely at blame here. Like He's the one who doesn't even want the covenant promises of God. Uh, he, he doesn't care about any of that. that. That proves his faithlessness, right? He doesn't want to have anything to do with Yahweh. I, I despise all, all those promises given to granddaddy Abraham. I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I despise that, in fact. The, Jacob doesn't. Jake, Jacob wants those things. The, the way that I was reading that, it says, uh, thus he saw despised his birthright. Wasn't, is, I'm getting that he despised it because his brother tricked him into like, getting rid of it. 
and said he was resentful and mad about it, more so than he got rid of it because he despised it. Following your interpretation, I think I think it would rather read, thus Esau despised Jacob for tricking him or for, for making himself his birthright, oh, rather yeah. than thus Esau despised his birthright. The commentary here is Esau doesn't care. He despised his birthright, which the birthright is not only are you going to inherit all this stuff, but all the covenant promises given to Abraham that were visited Jacob are now going to be yours. Responsibilities, exactly. Yeah, because with those promises come a lot of responsibility. And Esau doesn't want to have anything to do with that. He despises all that. He wants to do his own thing. We already see him pulling away from the family here, right? He's marrying two Hittite women. He's already trying to separate himself from the responsibilities of, of, of this family. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Any other questions? Final thoughts? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to come together and study your word. We pray that you would bless us now as we leave. We pray that you would continue to guide us into all truth and righteousness. May we practice loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself this week and all we do. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me in Reading Genesis. If you'd like to contact me, I'm available at reading.genesis.podcast at gmail.com. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.